was it to have Georgia up here helping to, uh, to lead us in worship. That was, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, told her, I've told her several times that I want her to help us, and I told her, just be ready, because one day I'm going to call you up there with us, and today was that day, and uh, man, she really did a good job, and it is, um, I, I don't know, I was encouraged by it, were you? Uh, to, uh, I mean, it just seemed to just lift uh, everybody's heart to see her, because you see what she's doing, right? She's putting everything she's got into worship. I mean, er the microphone, I think, inhibited her just a little bit. You know, it kind of kept her from being quite as expressive, but man, once it kicked in, she started just going to town with it. So I, I, I love that about her. Uh, I love to watch her worship. She is probably maybe my favorite person in the world to watch worship. Um, which, and I've seen a lot of people do that. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's saying, saying quite a bit. But I really love that. Uh, I, I, I just kind of went like this and she came on up. So that was, uh, she, was, she was ready. She was re which is a lesson to you when I call on you, be ready. Be ready. That's a lesson, right? Uh, Georgia's, given us, uh, Georgia's given us an object lesson, and she did really well, really well with that. If you've got your Bible, turn to, uh, to Acts chapter 8. As was mentioned, I am leaving in just a few minutes to go to Nashville, and so hence I'm going to try to keep it a little bit Shorter this morning. Also, we have food that is awaiting over there for all of you, and uh, I know you want me to keep it moving as well. So, uh, but I'm headed to Nashville. This is the final residency of my program. A um, lot going on. I will really appreciate your prayers on Thursday for those uh, those major uh, oral exams that I have to take. It'll take me about an hour. It'll be about middle of the day. So, if you're mid-mornings to kind of think about that, I would sure appreciate that, but it'll be, uh, it'll be really good. Uh, and I'm really excited uh, about what's coming up over the next couple of weeks. Next Sunday, John and Faye Smith are going to share uh, a very powerful testimony. It involves more than just one story. Uh, we've got some, some slides that will go with it that'll really just sort of help tell the story visually. It's going to be uh, pretty powerful. I know they're excited about it. I'm really excited to hear what they say. That'll be during the message next Sunday, so make sure to, to be here to, to listen to what they have to say, and that's going to just, that's really going to set us up for the beginning of, of the Holy Week that Tim referred to, uh, because it's, you know, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. Can you believe that? I mean, it's Triumphal Entry Sunday. That's what that is, where Jesus comes riding in, uh, and, and the people just begin to worship Him. A, a week that starts off so powerfully, you can't imagine that it's going to end the way it does on Friday, which segues us into what's going to be happening here on March 30th at 7 p.m. is our Tenebrae service. We'll have the lights down, uh, we'll have some readings, uh, we'll have candles, 
burning, and as we read, after each reading, the room will become progressively and progressively darker till it envelops us in darkness. And then we'll close in silence and we'll exit in silence. The whole idea is so that we have some, some slight semblance of what that must have been like on that Friday when Jesus was crucified, when the world was enveloped in darkness, when the Son of God was crucified. And so it's supposed to leave us with an anticipation of, of Sunday. Good Friday is good only because of Sunday, right? It was not Good Friday on the actual Friday. It was Bad Friday. The resurrection is what made Bad Friday Good Friday. So I'm hoping you'll be here for that. It's going to be really, really, I think, a, a very, very powerful, very powerful night. Well, let's just, uh, let's just jump right into uh, to our text this morning. You know, last week we closed out Martyr Part 2 where it ended with the death of Stephen. Stephen was one of the original seven deacons that was charged to, uh, to serve the church, but not only that, not only did he serve the church, he was a powerful preacher. And he had been empowered by the Spirit, he was doing all these signs and wonders, and it's kind of those things that, that got him in, in hot water with people and got him drugged before the Sanhedrin where they put him on trial and questioned him, and he launched into that speech where he said, remember, this is our story. This is our story. And he told them the temple is one thing, but it is not anything compared to Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. You know? And as I said last week, I don't think it was the stuff about Jesus that got Stephen in so much trouble because the Sanhedrin didn't really care about Jesus. They thought he was just another upstart criminal, okay, who they had put to death. What really got Stephen in trouble was that stuff about the temple where they viewed, they viewed that to be the most holy spot on earth, the place where heaven and earth meet. But what Stephen was really reminding us is, no, the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where they come together is in the church. It is in the people. Therefore, we today who are Christians, we are still the place where heaven and earth meet, right? We are the ones who are to bring heaven to earth. We are the ones who are supposed to be the answer to Jesus' prayer when he prayed to God and said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are the answer to Jesus' prayer. Do you realize that? That's pretty heavy, isn't it? But we are the ones who are tasked, equipped, empowered to bring heaven to earth. That's what it was that got Stephen in trouble. They drug him outside and they stoned him. Now then something I read this morning uh, was saying, was this an execution or was it a stoning more on par with a, a lynching? Well, Rome did not sanction the Sanhedrin to, to stone people. And it was done a little bit differently. And so what this was, is this wasn't a, a righteous execution. This was a murder. And it was not something that should have happened. But remember, these guys are so upset. They're so angry that they want to kill Stephen. They want to kill him. So let's, uh, let's begin reading, starting in, in verse 1. And we're only going to go through verse 8 today, and I'm going to make some comments along the way. Verse 1 says that Saul agreed with putting him to death 
On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Okay, remember last week. People are upset. They've drugged Stephen outside of the walls. They begin to stone him. And that's the first time in, in the New Testament where we meet Saul. Right? Now then, what we know about Saul from later readings and his own writings is that you know, he's, this, he's this great Hebrew. He's a great Jew. Okay, he's got the pedigree. He's got everything you need. He's a part of the, the Pharisees. He's been educated by this guy Gamaliel that we read about in chapter 5 that was just this well-respected rabbi. And as Stephen is being killed, you have Saul standing there giving approval, giving consent. Back around uh, verse, uh, was it 48 or 58? Back around verse 58 of chapter 7, it says they were handing the garments off to Saul. He was there holding the coats, holding the robes, giving consent to what was happening. What was happening. And that death affected him tremendously. Because what we see as we get into chapter 8 is no longer is Paul, or is Saul rather, going to be a, just, just a bystander. He's now going to be on the front lines. He's going to be one of the ones leading the charge. And he's not going to be there long, but it's in that short amount of time he does a tremendous amount of damage. So right here it says that he agreed with putting him to death. And on that day, the day Stephen died, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Now that is very, very important. Very important. And the whole story, it kind of pivots based on the rest of this. Now then, let's read the rest of verse 1. And all, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Okay. So everybody goes. All the, the deacons, everybody else is scattered. The only ones who remain behind in Jerusalem are the apostles. Everybody else is scattered because of the persecution. Now, for the last couple of weeks, I have been talking about or, or asking you to read and compare Acts 8, chapter 1 with Acts 1, chapter 8, right? Because what does it say right here? The persecution breaks out. Everybody is scattered through the land of Judea and Samaria. You compare that with Jesus' words in Acts 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Has that happened? Yes. The persecution breaks out. Where do they go? You'll go to, you'll go to Judea, you'll go to Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. Do you see that? They are fulfilling Jesus' words. Jesus said when they, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do. He says the Holy Spirit is going to, to come on you. You just wait. Wait here in Jerusalem, the most dangerous spot on earth for you to be right now. You wait right here, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to all the ends of the earth. And now, once this, once this persecution happens, it begins to spread. Jesus' words begin being, begin being fulfilled. Verse 2 says, Devout men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply, over him, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house 
and drag off men and women and put them into prison. You see the word there highlighted, ravaging. Ravaging means, it means to destroy, to, to tear up, to move, to shake, to stir up, to outrage, to, to violently maltreat, to make havoc of, or to ruin. Those are the descriptions of what Saul was doing to the church. Just a little bit earlier, Saul was kind of on the sidelines, right? He's there, he's marginal, he's watching what's happening, he, what happening. he's giving consent, but something in Stephen's death triggered something, and he says, I'm going to be a part of this. I'm going to protect this stuff. I have a feeling the temple stuff is probably running through the back of his mind. And the next time we meet him in chapter 8, he's no longer standing there holding coats. He's handing off his coat so that he can go all over the place to destroy the church. Going into houses, with permission by the way, dragging off not just men, but men and women. Gender was not an issue. Okay, Saul was an EOP. He was an equal opportunity persecutor. It did not matter if you were a member of this, this, what they call the church, or the way, Saul was coming after you. And he was going to drag you off, and he was going to put you into prison. He later says in his own writing that is really a condemnation of this former way of life, which is now his current way of life, that I persecuted the church even to what? To death. That's what Saul did. That's what he does. That's what this means by ravaging the church. The, 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 the words that Luke uses are right. Because it's not just, oh yeah, he was against the church. He's way more than that. He's trying to destroy this church that is changing his whole his whole lifestyle so he drags them off he puts them into prison then verse 4 so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them so there it is One of the things that I've always loved is to be near a, uh, a pond or a lake, usually early in the morning, maybe there's a little bit of mist hanging around, but it's a calm morning. The water is calm, it's still, it's not moving, and then to pick up the biggest rock I can find and throw it as far as I can and watch it land, because what happens? It splashes, but then what happens from there? It ripples. And a lot of times, the ripples go all the way, spreading out all over the pond, hitting all of the shore. And there is nothing you can do to stop it. Now, the reason why I have called this message ripple is for that very reason. The Sanhedrin thought that by killing Jesus, they would stop all of this nonsense, right? They continue to think that by killing Stephen. If we kill this guy who is talking about the temple that's the most holy place on earth in their minds, we'll put an end 
to all of this. That will eat it. In fact, Gamaliel even points that out. Remember what he said? Remember those guys that rose up and they had a following and we killed them and it came to nothing. We're just going to keep doing that. The way you stomp something out is you kill it. That's their mentality. But Gamaliel also says something else. He doesn't realize, I don't think, the magnitude of what he's saying. You might be fighting against God. And it turns out they were. Because there is a divine plan that is in play that they're not even aware of. They thought that by killing Jesus, by killing Stephen, it's going to end this, this movement. Satan's attempt, Satan's attempts to destroy Jesus have failed. So what he does is he turns his attention and his sights on the church. He goes after the bride of Christ, which is us. The persecution intended to destroy the church is the spark that sets the whole world ablaze for Jesus. You realize that? Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Judea, and to the ends of all the earth. Luke says, after Stephen dies, a great persecution broke out against the church on that day. And the disciples were scattered from Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea all because of this death, because of this persecution, because of Saul ravaging the church. It, it, think, think about this, and, and, and I, haven't, I haven't teased this out. This is just maybe one of these Holy Spirit things, or either it's a Jason thing. It's a Jason thing, forget ever said it. But think about this. Paul is responsible for the spreading and evangelization of the church before he has Jesus and the Holy Spirit and after. Does that make sense? It spread partly because of his account, because of his persecution. Later on, it's going to spread because of his willingness to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus, who he can't stand. For the sake of this very church that he's trying to destroy. I mean, this book is fixing to, I mean, it's good right now, but it's fixing to really get as we watch this, this pivot that we're reading about today take place and the church explode, the words of Jesus become fulfilled. Because what has happened in the 2,000 years is that all nations have heard about Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. And because people have been witnesses, they have been willing to be witnesses in Jerusalem. There were witnesses in Samaria. There were witnesses in Judea. There were witnesses to the ends of the earth. And people have given their lives by the thousands for the sake of Jesus Christ and His, and His kingdom. So the persecution breaks out and it says that Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the gospel to them. Now that's a big deal, right? Because you remember when Jesus was ministering? You remember what the people thought about Samaria, the Jews? 
They didn't like Samaria. They didn't like the Samaritans. They looked at them as a mixed race, as people who had compromised, as had sold out. They did not stay pure to the faith. And therefore, they had no share in the promises of God. Jesus would deliberately go through Samaria when the other guys, they'd go into Samaria, but they'd go outside of Samaria to get food and bring their Jewish food back into Samaria. Race was an issue. They hated these people, not just because of religious practice, but there was some race going on that caused and drove this hatred of them. But the persecution takes place. The Holy Spirit has indwelled people. And what you see is Philip, this Jewish man, going to Samaria preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is preaching the message. Now then, verse 6. Verse 6 says, The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and as they saw the signs he was performing for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Jesus has the power to change lives. You realize that? Paul who is a Jew of Jews, is later going to write in Galatians, there is no male nor female. There's no slave or free. There's no Jew or Greek. In other words, all the things that we use to divide all the markers we use to limit somebody from doing something are out. He says we are all one in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see that? And that's the point of the message this morning. And it's, it's very simply this. God's grace is for the whole human race. It's simple, but sometimes that is so hard to live up to, right? And we're going to see this. Once we get into to chapter 10, Peter's whole world is going to be turned upside down. He's going to argue with God, not like that's not something he's not used to, but he's going to argue with God again even after he has the Holy Spirit. And it's going to open his eyes. And Peter is going to realize that God's grace is for the entire human race. It's for all people. In Jesus Christ, we are all one. There's no one that's more important than the other. We're all one in Jesus. And so our task as the church, as the Christ-centered community, tasked with making sure that we are the people where heaven and earth come together, 
making sure that we are the ones that make things or participate with God in making things on earth as they are in heaven. Our task is to go forth and make it known and be administrators of God's grace for the entire human race. You realize we get to participate with God's giving of grace. When you show grace to somebody else, when I show grace to somebody else, that's God's grace working through us that we're extending to others. That's what a Christ-centered community looks like. A group of people that says, I don't care who you are, I don't care where you came from, I don't care what your background is, I don't care how bad you've blown it and how dirty you think you are. God's grace is for you. Just as it's for me who has it all together. You're right. But even for those of us who think we have it all together, God's grace is still for us. God's grace is for the entire human race. And as the Christ-centered community, it's our job to be agents of that grace. Let's pray together.